When is it wrong to be right? When is it wrong to be right? I heard of a church some time ago that got into an unholy argument over whether or not they ought to have a Christmas tree at their Christmas church program. And it caused a right royal stink. Some thought that a tree was fine at the end of the day. It's a tree. Others thought that it was a pagan practice. And they got so angry at each other that they actually got into a fist fight over it. Listen, we'd never do that, would we? One group dragged the tree out, then the other group physically dragged the tree back in. They ended up suing each other in a court of law, and of course the whole thing was spread across the newspapers for people who never really went to church and got a little bit confused about what the hubbub was about. And what else would the non-Christians conclude, other than that the gospel consists of whether or not you have a Christmas tree or not? I suppose in some way they made such an important issue over it, they were ready to physically attack one another. Would that ever happen here? Well, given that the same sin runs through our veins, it could. So here's your little bit of work here. You can see three questions. There you go, they're coming. Can you see the three questions there? Terms of people near you. Okay, take that example and ask yourself those three questions about the Christmas tree. Who was right? What did it produce? And how did it make God look? Yeah? Who was right? What did it produce? And how did it make God look? There you go. Two minutes. Go for it. Go. Go. Make sure you hit all three of the questions. Don't camp out on the first. Got another minute or so. We'll try and do the other questions too. Not just the first one. No, three questions. Who was right? What did it produce? How did God make... How did it make God look? Those three. Just those three questions. Good. Quarter of a minute. Go on then. You're quieting down, okay? Right? Let's get a bit of feedback. Who was right? Who was wrong? Was there a right answer? Was there a wrong answer? Okay, come on. (laughs) Come on. Okay, do you want to answer that at all? Okay. It is a pagan symbol, but it doesn't really matter. Okay. Go on. 
Both the wrong God. Brilliant. So you're saying there's, there's something more there's something more important than just who's actually right and wrong. There's a bigger picture there. That's really helpful. Good. But when I want what I want and I think I know what's right, that's all that matters, isn't it? Isn't it? So come on. According to the Bible now, who was right and who was wrong? Is it okay to have a church uh, uh, have a, a Christmas tree in a church building? Yes or no? Yes. It is. Because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not have a Christmas tree. You can understand the sensitivity of the desire of certain people to protect the fact that we want to be distinctive standing for Jesus. But the Bible's dead clear. You want to have a tree in there. You can have a, I don't know, plant whatever you want. Plant Nathaniel upside down if you want. But yeah, that's, that's fine, okay? It does not say, in the way in the Bible, you shall not do this. It's a matter of dispute. So there is a right and wrong answer. It's okay to have a Christmas tree. Whether you want one or not, it's up to you, but it's okay. It should be dragged out, punch up over it. Good, next one. What did, the, what did that whole thing produce? A mess. Good, anything else? It's amazing, that, isn't it? It took on a life of its own. Have you noticed how the smallest little thing, and if sin and bad attitude gets in there, boom, World War III. It's amazing, that, isn't it? Good, carry on. What else? What else did it produce? So it wasn't just, it didn't just mess up between people. That's it, because whenever you've got grief between people, it always, it just does, it just affects the way you're relating to God, that kind of thing. What else? Okay, that's move on to the next one. How did it make God look? If you weren't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you saw them Christians behaving like that, how does it make their God look? Pretty small. Good. What else? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, not in control. Can't control them. Brilliant. We've had two from Carol. Somebody help Carol out. Sorry? Yeah. What, what would a God who's bothered about whether you have a Christmas tree or not in the front of the room be able to say into my life? That God must be pretty small and petty. Or perhaps that God, God is just a God who you just have to like tick a whole little stack of boxes for. The long and the short of it, it makes God look pathetic. And is that our job, to make God look pathetic? Oh no. We're gonna come, we're, hopefully we'll get a chance to come back to this, but this whole section in Romans is all to do with, well... You can be wrong even though you are theologically right. And Carol's helped us out on a few of the reasons as to why there. And we're going to look into this. So you want to remember, what is the context in Romans, okay? What you've got is, Rome was a pagan city. The gospel goes to Rome and a whole stack of people become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they haven't got a Jewish background. And if you remember, the Jewish background was very much, there was quite a lot of rules and regulations. God had prescribed for them what it actually looked like to be a holy nation whilst they got ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus, who would make them a holy nation. So there were a whole stack of things like food laws, what you do on this day, what you do on that day. Just So every day, as a Jewish person, you would bump into something that reminded you you were one of God's people. But when Jesus came, and his spirit was put within us, and we had his word open before us, we don't need all those little rules and regulations and things to remind us that we're God's people, because well, he puts it into our hearts, 
Now, so what happened was in this pagan city where there were people who'd been converted from being pagans to being Christians, along came some visitors, for one reason or another, who were Jewish converts. They were Jewish people who had become Christians and trusted in Jesus, but since they were that high, they'd been brought up with all these little rules and regulations. What you eat, what you drink, what day you do stuff on, and what day you don't do stuff on. You see? It was all about your days, your diets, and your drink. And they walk into Rome and see these Roman Christians who had been converted from paganism who hadn't got any of those traditions there and they look straight at them and go, Oh! Hmm. You're not very holy, are you? Because if you were, you'd be doing X, Y, and Z. You wouldn't have the Christmas tree. And then like over there, looked down at them and they said, Hold on, we're standing in Jesus. He's made us wonderfully free on certain matters. Yeah, we're not talking about things, you know, the Bible's very clear on plenty of things, okay? But there are certain things, like Christmas trees. The Bible says, well, it's up to you. So these guys were over here saying, judging them and saying, you're a danger. And these guys over here were saying, you're a joke. You need to be more enlightened and get the gospel like we do. And what was happening? Tension. Was God being honoured? Oh, no. Was his grace being upheld and everybody was using their time and attention to look at his wonderful grace to them? No. They were too busy squabbling over things that really didn't make that much difference. And what Paul is interested in here is showing that it is possible to be wrong even though you are theologically right. So this bit we're going to look at is mainly going to be talking to the people who are standing here who were in the right theologically but they were also in the wrong in the way that they were treating other people who were described as the weak in this sense in that they've got sensitive consciences. You know, they've they've erected a few little caution clauses just to make sure that they're not displeasing to God. Do you see that? So I don't know what it... Well, for them it was easy. It was things like your days, your diet, your drink. But for us it could be, should we keep Sunday special? Or about gambling? How about when we're singing together? Do we hold our hands up or put our hands down? What do we do? What about the way in which we baptise people? What about baptism as a baby or baptism as an adult? Now, the Bible tells us there are right and wrong answers on those things. But for some people, because they're relatively young Christians or because they've, they've always been in a kind of church that has always done it some way, those things are particularly precious to them. And what happens if... Shall I tell you when it'll come up? It'll come up when us lot as a church go and meet with people at New World Alive and we come with people who are from different backgrounds and they love the Lord but they do things slightly differently and we will either be <laughs> and we'll probably be both at the same time towards some people it was probably the same for you guys who went over to um, Albania you know you met with a whole big bunch of Christians who did stuff slightly different and some of them you were like and others you were like <laughs> It's the same if you go and do beach missions or do a camp with the teenagers this summer. You'll go and you'll see other Christians who are there and you'll do, you know... It's the same sometimes when we have people who perhaps haven't been part of our church very long. They've come from one for one reason or another from another church and they sort of look and see lots of things they like about what's going on here in our church family and then a minute like that, he did what? He said that from the front? Hmm. Or it could be, you get the idea. That's what happens. And Paul wants us to, wants to say it is possible to be very right theologically, but oh so wrong in a way that it grieves God's heart. So let's see them. I've given you um, 
two times. Oh, hold on, let me just get this. All right, okay, right, okay. We've been told here, we're going to, I'll just give you an overview very quickly, then we'll zip through it, and I want to, I'm going to cut short if I have to, because I want to give you time for questions. This is a good one for questions at the end, isn't it? So keep your questions in mind. The key issue here, as we'll see, running all the way through, is that it, there is something more important than being right, and it is this whole theme that's been in this bit of Romans, which is being loving. Can you remember what loving is? I defined it for you almost every week. What does it mean to be loving according to the Bible? According to Romans, what does it mean to be loving? Is it like, oh, is that being loving? Or, oh, I really like you. Is, is it that? What's it, what's it mean to be loving? Come on, some encouragement. Put somebody else's needs above your own. Good, put it another way. Sorry? Sacrificial for their benefit. Does loving mean I like you? No. Loving just means, I will do what is in your best interest and in the best interest of the gospel. That's what it means to have lo- be loving towards people. And so often we fall down, don't we, because we think being loving is liking people. No, you don't have to like somebody to do what is in their best interest. But the difficulty with loving is because it is, as James says, sacrificial, quite often it is costly. And the thing that is on view here, the thing that is at risk, the thing that if you're going to follow through and be like Jesus is that you're going to have to be be prepared to set aside things that you have a right to. You see, back at that other church, they had a right to put up a Christmas tree. Do you reckon they should have done it? It's not that important, either. And we're going to see about how sometimes to be a Christian means you're, for the love of somebody else, to be gentle with them, to be kind, to be gracious you have to put aside your personal liberty. Which is really hard for you and me, because what is it that our culture teaches us is the most important thing? Be free! Have your rights! Fight for your right to party, apparently, according to the song. That's the most important thing. Get my bit. We have an entitlement culture. Can I tell you, this is really where the rubber hits the road. This is where we will stand out as being people who are different, because out there the idea is, you've got a right to get what you want, and if anybody gets in the way, steamroll them. But here the idea is, well, I will put aside what I have a right to, in order that I may do what is in the best interest of other people. You see that? So, right, let's move on very quickly. Here we go. Two things. First, uh, to the end of chapter 14, we're going to call it, uh, when is it wrong to do what is right? Answer, when you risk stumbling the people of God. Okay, let's have a quick look at this. Now, if... Well, let's read the verse. Here we go, from verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is convinced in the Lord Jesus, that I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. And if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not eat. Uh, do not, while you are eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ dies. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? If you belong to Jesus, you need to decide not to trip other people up and make them stumble over in the pursuit of your freedom, just so you can do stuff the way that you like it to be done. That's really demanding, isn't it? Because what we'll do in life is, generally speaking, we will put around us people who... 
either allow us or even help us to do what we want to do. And here we've been told that actually if you belong to Jesus what you'll do is you will gather around people, draw people towards you who do the exact opposite. You mean that you have to hold off on what you want to do so that you can be good and gracious to them. And it's interesting here that it's make your mind up, resolve. Now this is so hard to get, so I'll tell you why. Most people when they first start coming to a church family don't come with the idea, I want to go there so I can serve people. Now, you first come to a church family because, well, I want to get right with God and I, want to, I can identify with people there and I, can, I like the way they do it. Have you noticed that? So whenever somebody first comes here, it's because, well, who's big on their radar? Them. And that's okay. But as you become more grown up as a believer, that twists a little bit from not all being about how you get what you want, but how being part of that family, you realise that you want to help other people get what they need. I was talking to one of the leaders of the Christchurch up in town the other day, he said it's, it's really funny because they have a lot of new people come every year, particularly students, and then these new students come and they settle at their church because they like the way their church does stuff. The reason their church does stuff that way is to attract certain groups of people, so to bend towards those people, to do what was helpful for those sorts of people. And then as the elders, they get together from time to time and they say, how are we doing? Are we achieving this? Are we bending? Are Christians here bending towards people perhaps who are outsiders or from a different background? And they'll say, yes. Or sometimes they say, ah, actually, we could do it better if we did it this way. So the leaders stand up and say, right, we, we're going to try and do it a little bit differently to reach those people over there. And suddenly the Christians who come in because they like it done that way are like, what are you doing? I like it that way. And the elders have to go to them and say, hold on, the reason we did it that way was to try and be helpful to those people. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, so your job as well is to bend and try and make it helpful for these people. Now oh, I find this very hard. I find this very hard indeed. Um, but the word here is, don't cause anybody to stumble. I'm very bad at thinking about other people's needs. So, I was the kid who always used to play kick the heel. Remember that? You walk along with a bunch of mates, and usually when he's laughing, he's dead off, because he was that kid as well, look at him. You used to pick on people like Nathan, didn't you? You villain. So it's always me who'd be the one who'd like, whoops, kick the ankle out from under them. <laughs> and I'd keep on doing that, and it wasn't until I did it once to one of our daughters. Did it to my daughter. We're walking across the field, uh, just for a joke. Kick the heels together. And a face ground through the dirt. And if she cried, I could have lived with it, but she didn't. She stood up, looked at me without blinking, and the bottom lip started to go. And at that point, I melted. I started to cry. <laughs> she looked at me without looking and said, how could you do this to me? How could you trip me up and make me stop? You! How could you do it to me? But I haven't done it since. It's not funny, is it, to trip somebody up and cause them to stumble. And yet, in the defence of our rights to do what we want to do because we've got the freedom to do it, sometimes we rub people's face through the dirt, don't we? We cause them untold distress, 
pain, talks about destruction here, I think wrecking their heads about how, who am I as a, as a person in the faith. And there's, three, there's two, way, two things that come out here that, that result in this. I think we find in verses 14 to 18, what happens if you trip somebody up like this by depending on, and standing on your liberty, you can make the gospel very small in their eyes. Can you see this in verse, where is it, verse 14? Uh, as one who is convinced in the Lord Jesus that I am fully, con- sorry, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by what, you, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Make him stumble. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. You see that? So I'll give you an example of what this might look like. There was a time when I was leading a beach team uh, down on the south coast and there are people from all different church backgrounds. Some, they're swinging from the ceilings. Others, they're all like this and very traditional. On the first day out, I said, right, come on, we're all going off down the beach and I'd buy the whole team an ice cream. Free to do that. I think that's what the Bible says. So we eat an ice cream together and there's a guy there who was like, he wouldn't have an ice cream. Now, it turns out he was from a more strict background where they said, you don't go to the shops on Sunday. Now, I didn't really respect that, did I? I was like, oh, come on, let's all get in together. And it had a result. And this was the result. Me exercising my freedom to scoff a cornetto meant that for the rest of the week, guess what the topic of conversation around the table was? Was it what I was teaching them from the Bible, where I was teaching them all about the grace of God in Christ and, and how wonderful He is and His might and His mercy and His kindness to us? Was that the topic around the, co- the table? Oh no, it was whether or not you should eat cornetto on a Sunday. And that guy, when he listened, and I, when he listened to me, he wasn't... Well, it took about the rest of the week to get his confidence back. You see, from Sunday through to Saturday, he could have been learning about God's grace from me, but because I made a foolish decision... He'd shut his ears to anything that I said because he thought I was a bit dodgy. It wasn't until the end of the week that I'd actually unpacked the damage of my bad decision. Do you see that? I'd caused that guy in some sense to stumble. I'd caused my freedom, which is a good thing in the gospel, to be spoken of as bad. I dishonoured the gospel by that. Do you see that? So there's one of my cock-ups on it. You see, the Bible isn't all about what you do when you don't do and your religious stuff. In fact, this is a wonderful surprise. You realise that the more you grow in the Christian faith, you become less religious, not more. People out there think, come to church, you get more and more and more religious. More and more little dudes and don'ts and rules. No! According to this, the more you go on in the faith, the more you just do what verse 17 says there. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking and these little things but of righteousness, how God has put us right with him, peace, how God has given us peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, in other words, the joy that we get to live as we were made to live, not having to be fearful of lesser things. And what had I done by my stupid decision? I'd eclipsed all of that and made, made God's grace small. So if you want others to get it, sometimes you just have to let go of your freedom so that you can build them up. But the other one as well you see here in these verses is not just so that you made the gospel small. There's a danger here that you'll actually lead people to sin. Okay? Now let's have a look at, so verse 22. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts, in other words, the weaker brother who's confused. If he has doubts, he is condemned if he eats. Do you get that? 
because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not pres- uh, come from faith is sin. So here's a test situation. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question. Shout out some answers. We don't have time to discuss it. Let's say I go home later this afternoon. I'm upstairs and Bethany wants a biscuit. That wouldn't be a surprise. And she's feeling lazy, so she sends Becky up and says, Becky, go and find out off Daddy whether or not I can have a biscuit. So Becky comes partway up the stairs and, and says, Daddy, can Bethany have a biscuit? And I shout down, yeah, I suppose she can have a biscuit. And somewhere in that communication process, uh, Becky mishears and hears it as a negative of me saying, no, you can't have a biscuit. Becky runs straight back downstairs and says, Bethany, no, you cannot have a biscuit. And Bethany goes to the box and has one anyway. Has she been disobedient against her dad? Has she sinned against her dad? Why? But I'd say she can have a biscuit. She was permitted to have a biscuit. Yeah? Exactly. So what she did was she went against her conscience. You see, sin isn't what we do, fundamentally. Sin is an attitude within us. So it is possible to have a conscience that says, oh, I shouldn't do that, even though you're allowed to, but if you go against your conscience, effectively you're sticking the two fingers up of God. Do you see that? It's frightening. So if you, let me tell, I'm telling you now, if you think something is sin, don't do it. Don't. Even if your friends at church are doing it, because what sin is, is not little do's and don'ts, it's an attitude of conscience against God. Ask yourself, if my conscience thinks it's not pleasing to God, if that's the case, then keep clear of it. But notice he drives us even harder here in verse 21, uh, of a verse... Yeah, verse 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So he doesn't put the emphasis here on the people who have got a weak conscience. He puts it on those who have got a strong conscience and what it does to your weaker brother. Do you see that? He says, don't pressurise people. If in doubt, you keep clear. So to the Jewish, to the pagan Christians in Rome, he says, lay down your pork pie, go get your shopping on a Monday rather than on Sabbath, and top up your drinks with Coke and not cognac. Do that, because the last thing you want to do is damage, tempting to sin, your weaker brother. So let me give you this example. When Jane first went to university, she'd come from a very strict background. We'd tell that now by looking at her, would you? For the sake of it. Now, she comes from a very, very strict background where she was told, Christians don't drink. And that was burned into a conscience. It was wrong, because Christians are allowed to drink in moderation. In fact, the Bible says, um, we've got wine to make, God gave us wine to make glad the hearts of men. Drunkenness, you know that. That's way up there, not even in the... But it's okay to have a little glass of wine in moderation. But she'd be told, no, bad, Christians don't do it. So she goes to university, she goes and joins the Christian Union, where they're all supposed to be keen on the Lord Jesus and everything like that, and they were. And where do they go? Straight after the first Christian meeting, where do they go? The pub! And she's like scratching her head and all confused. 
But she goes along there, and you can ask her reasons why later, probably because there was a fellow there she liked. Probably wasn't me, but that's not a problem. I was settled down the list, that's okay. And so she, get, she goes, to, and they're all at the bar, and they're ordering the pints, and they are drinking sensibly, and they're keeping it in moderation, but she's offered a drink, and her conscience is saying, don't take it, don't take it, don't take it, don't take it, don't take it. They hand it to her, and she... She's culpable, because she's gone against her conscience. But so am I. So what you said earlier was dead right, Carol. Dead right. That actually, people's, other people's spiritual well-being is incredibly precious. And it is our responsibility. It is. Now we struggle with this, don't we? When we first come into church, we think it's all about me. But after a while, we start to realise that our decisions and the things that we do have a massive impact on the rest of the church family, don't they? You never sin to yourself. It always dribbles out. You never make choices purely to yourself at all different levels. But we have an obligation according to this, and I'm going to have to forget the second point, we have an obligation to be like Jesus. You see, Christ, he gave away his liberty, didn't he? He gave away his life to bring grace to people who were a bit like you and me who are people who are, well, moaning, groaning, quarrelling, wrong, not quite got everything right, confused, critical. He did that for us, and he gave us time to change. So here Paul says, back, way back in verse 14, I think it is, or 15, he says, you know, don't treat us as nothing. People's spiritual health, because Christ died for them, just as he died for you. So be prepared to lay aside your liberty. To see them built up and encouraged. So when is it wrong to do the right thing? It's when you risk stumbling the people of God. I've got a whole other point, and I'm going to just wipe it out as much as I want to bring it to you because it's really exciting about what God does for us. But anyway, no. Uh, can't. We've got people who are booked in to do different things. Sorry. I've messed them about. I don't want to make my weaker brother Mark stumble. Um, we're gonna, I've got to leave it there because I want to give you time to be able to ask some questions. Okay? Question time then. Go on, Amy. That's brilliant, that is. Okay, that's, that's really helpful. That's a cracking question. He's basically saying, somebody could hold us to ransom almost on this, or uh, when, when, are there any limits within this? I think... Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant question. I think what we can say is, okay, most of us in this room know something about what other churches might and might not hold precious. So on those things, particularly have your radar up. But I think the thrust of the text here is saying um, you've got to be... Remember, in Romans, they were in a situation where it had already bubbled up. Okay? 
So it was easy for them to be able to spot what it was all about. Here, we just have to have a general awareness to stop and ask ourselves a question. When might this be unhelpful for other people and be prepared to change our behaviour as a result of it? You know, it could be that we, for all we know, we have somebody who walks in here and has a particular foible that you should not have brown chairs in a church building. And from his point of view, he can prove it theologically. However, the Bible is very clear that you can have whatever colour chair you jolly well please. My guess is we don't have to go and ask him whether he likes the colour of the chairs. But there will be some things that are much more culturally sensitive that we know from people's backgrounds might be precious to them. And you just want to be asking the question. I think what this is, this is all about an attitude. If there's a willingness and an attitude to ask questions of yourself, then I think we're most of the way there. Okay? Oh, can I just say this? Paul comes quite strongly and he says, the failings of the weak. So his view and his hope is that over time, people who have got an oversensitive conscience about certain things that are disputable matters, they will be shepherded towards the truth. But it's an attitude that says, I will let go of my liberty whilst they move towards that. That can be said of people who come new to our church family, and we've had several, many over the years who've come, and they, they love the fact the gospel's at the centre, but there's a few things that are a little bit tricky. You know, the first day that they come up, I go up to them and say, right, it's our way or the highway, which is what some churches in America do. That wouldn't be very gracious. We just give time for people to if just adjust. And it could be as we listen to them, there's things they need to teach us as well. We need to learn from them. Because we've got it wrong. Okay? Yeah, do you know, that's my mindset. James basically saying, yeah, we should be free to talk about these things. But it's interesting here, this was a shock to me, is that actually Paul says, whatever you think on these matters, keep your gob shut. In some sense, I think there's times when you can do sort of heavy shepherding and go in with your size nines. So I think the thing that this passage here is suggesting is, if you're going to address this with people, you do it really cautiously and in a framework of grace and kindness. So perhaps let's take the example of the guy on the, uh, the beach mission. I, 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 what I should have done was not, I, I should have encouraged people, let's say out of respect, you know, let's, um, we'll eat our ice creams tomorrow. And then maybe towards the end of the week when I'm in a good relationship with him, I'd just ask him a couple of questions about it. I wouldn't see it as my job to convert him, I'd see it as the Lord's job to convert him. Do, do you see that? So we've got to be free to be able to talk about these things. I'm thinking about things where, it's not, it's not when I'm looking at somebody else, um, and thinking, um, you know, I feel free about this issue, but they're not, and I want to change them. But if there's, if there's an issue that I'm not sure about, yeah. and I'm not sure whether it needs to be to or not. Brilliant point. I want to be able to ask. Yeah, that's really helpful, because the problem is, is sometimes we disagree over what's disputable. Yeah. I can think of a specific example that's come up this year. talking about here is when you're pursuing behaviours that are unhelpful. Unhelpful. Okay? 
Yeah, we'll come back to that because 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 has something to say. Go on, John. So, you just all, all listen to what John's saying here. John, that we take from here that actually he's saying exactly that, but he gives particular guidance to two groups of people. To those who are of um, weaker conscience, 
he says, you watch out that you don't judge people. And to those, and he, this is who he speaks to mainly, to those who feel they have a measure of freedom, they have, I think in the light of this, they have to have a very good reason to carry on exercising that freedom if there are people who, by genuine conscience, are struggling with it. His sides in this bit are on people who, are, who have got, who have thought it through and are pretty confident this is what the Bible says and they feel a measure of freedom to do something. I think that he's saying, you have to be very careful about how you go off. Just be very cautious. Um, maybe use time, be patient with people. I think that's what he's pushing out. Which has basically put me in the wrong an awful lot of times. So I've been theologically right and I've not treated people properly. Sorry, Posh? Who hasn't had a, a chance? Could anybody want to ask a question who hasn't had a chance yet so far? trying to consider weak believers the needs of them and balance with that with the fact that you want to flex to unbelievers as well. That gets complicated and messy. And if you want me to preach that, we'll preach through 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through to 10 which answers that question because it deals with both within two chapters. Quickly. Go on. Maybe. How do we make sure, how do we, how do we guard ourselves 
how do we guard ourselves to make sure that people aren't, um, by conscience, holding other people to ransom, in some sense? Uh, answer is love and time. Love and time. So there's a risk of, you know, but at the end of the day, this is all about the Lord Jesus. We take advantage of his grace and his yielding up of his liberty every single day when we're slow, when we're stupid, when we don't, pick, uh, when we don't catch on very quickly, um, when we're just downright sinful, and yet he continues to lavish his grace and he gives us time in which to understand that. I, I really, John, you've got a point that we, we, I've got a... Sorry, yeah, we just have to call time on that now. We've been going for a few minutes. So, that's where we are. If we get this, what will happen? As we start to live this out, I'm just going to summarise chapter 15 very quickly. It's all about building people up. You see, the issue is, is we've got a building project over the road called the Noahs. And my guess is that as people watch, they'll see this building project and see things building and they'll see the people doing it and they'll even have our name attached to it and they'll say, wow, speak Baptist church. And they'll... They'll praise us and say, isn't that good? Isn't that good? So we've built in such a way as to bring praise to us. But if they see a bunch of people who are different, who humanly speaking wouldn't get on, who humanly speaking would have all kinds of disputable matters between them, would struggle. And they see them working it through. They see people giving up their own rights to, to help somebody else who they don't even, disagree, don't even agree with in order to build together a unity. People in Speak won't go, wow, aren't Speak Baptist Church good? People will look at us and go, there's only one explanation for that. And it's God's grace. And that's what he talks about here. So he says, at the end of that section, in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the area that it will show that we are different to everybody else. This will be the area that brings glory and praise. That is why all those Old Testament quotes are in there. People will praise God for the fact they can see the most unlikely people growing together, giving up their liberty for the sake of serving others so that we're all built up together. Let's pray and then let's sing.